1: The Australian National University hack and data loss look to many observers like the work of Chinese intelligence services. The Gold Brute Botnet is scanning vulnerable RDP servers. Muddy Water is back, undeterred by leaks and learning from the best. The Rig Exploit Kit is delivering Buran ransomware. Achilles says he's got the goods. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission IG looks at cyber inspections. And Big Tech prepares for big antitrust. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 7, 2019. As investigators continue to look into the cyber incident at the Australian National University, signs point to Chinese intelligence services as the operators behind the recent hack. It's consistent with other Chinese operations, which have aimed either at the cultivation of sources or the acquisition of intellectual property. In this case, the ANU hackers appear to have been engaged in recruitment. The attackers exfiltrated some two decades' worth of personal data that the Sydney Morning Herald says includes bank account numbers, tax information, and academic records of both students and staff. Investigators believe one of the campaign's principal objectives was to groom Australian students headed into civil service careers for recruitment as agents. ANU graduates are heavily represented in public service. The evidence pointing to China is circumstantial. First, only a small number of countries have the technical wherewithal to execute an attack of this kind. Second, an even smaller subset of those would be interested in doing so. And third, the attack seems to fit the pattern displayed in other Chinese cyber espionage campaigns. Why would an intelligence service be interested in financial and academic records? For any number of reasons. The more one knows about prospective agents, the easier it is to get your hooks into them. You might wish to develop the sort of rapport that might be useful in recruitment. You studied Levi's poetry? What a coincidence. Me too. I always found quiet night thought particularly moving. Or maybe you wouldn't believe the trouble I had with the credit department at regional... What? You too? Let's talk. Or you could accustom them to doing small innocent favors that lead to less innocent favors that lead to quite guilty favors. I've completely lost touch with Chloe. You remember her from ANU? You wouldn't happen to have a copy of a staff directory you could give me. I'd so love to get back in touch. And who wouldn't want to help out Chloe? And the next staff directory might be from an Australian Signals Directorate contractor. And then maybe an internal memo would be much appreciated because that nice person is interested in investments. Eventually, you get the point where you feel you have to refuse, but by then you may have given away things that, the nice person points out, well, people just wouldn't understand. Better for you if you keep playing ball. And rougher still, it's also possible to turn up material that might be useful in compromising a target. I notice you wrote an honors essay on Levi's waking from drunkenness on a spring day. Did your drinking problems at Canberra lead you to that particular poem? Or perhaps, worst of all, something like this. It would be a shame if your second cousin in Shenzhen lost his job. Actually, losing his job might be the least bad thing that could happen. Chinese operators have been behind this kind of hack before, and it fits well into traditional espionage craft. The risks of remote desktop protocol vulnerabilities are coming into sharper focus, Morphous Labs warns that a botnet, Gold Brute, is scanning and brute-forcing about a million and a half RDP servers. There are several known RDP vulnerabilities out there, and there are patches available, including patches for Blue Keep, which Microsoft and NSA and their sisters and cousins and their aunts are really urging everyone to patch. Iran's hacking group Muddy Water, also known as Seedworm, might have seen more of its tools leaked online, but that hasn't made it pull in its horns. Clearski warns that the threat group is actively impersonating government accounts and using at least two new techniques. Microsoft documents carrying malicious macros, an exploitation of CVE-2017-0199, that is, Microsoft Office WordPad Remote Execution Vulnerability with Windows API. These, of course, aren't new attack tactics, but they're new for muddy water and represent Iranian intelligence and security services' long-standing determination to learn lessons and improve their game. It doesn't have to be novel, and it doesn't have to be innovative. It just has to be well-executed, and it just has to work. These work, especially against unprepared victims. The RIG exploit kit is now being used to deliver Buran ransomware— Buran looks like gangland for-profit work, although, of course, there's often a degree of penetration and control of the Russian mob by organs of the Russian state. The best defense against this Russian strain of ransomware are updated security software, since Buran arrives via exploit kits, sound offline backup, and properly suspicious users. That, of course, is good advice at any time. Our linguistic desk helpfully points out that Buran means blizzard. Researchers at security firm Advanced Intelligence are calling out another criminal active in dark web markets. He goes by the name Achilles, speaks English, and is suspected of being Iranian. He's selling, he claims, credentials that would give the buyer access to security companies, charities, and at least one international organization, UNICEF. There's no confirmation yet that Achilles can deliver the goods he's offering, but he enjoys a good reputation in this very bad neighborhood— his criminal clients consistently give him strong reviews, so maybe there's something there. In any case, Achilles bears watching. Cryptocurrency firms are under attack, as usual. Gatehub users lost some $9.7 million, and blockchain startup Komodo, not to be confused with security firm Komodo, hastily patched a vulnerability in its wallet. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is short on cyber workers, A report by the commission's inspector general found that the NRC's cybersecurity inspections, quote, generally provide reasonable assurance that nuclear power plant licensees adequately protect digital computers, communication systems, and networks associated with safety, important to safety, security, and emergency preparedness, end quote. But the NRC, as much as it trains current staff to conduct cyber inspections, still finds itself facing a familiar problem. Good cyber talent is in high demand and not that easy to hire, especially into the government. The IG also found that the current cyber inspection program is risk-informed but not fully performance-based. The report urges the Commission to work on appropriate performance measures. And finally, as the antitrust sharks circle Big Tech, Big Tech is putting K Street shark repellent into the Beltway waters – ...hiring lobbyists to fend off the regulatory predators. And Facebook is reported to have begun bringing in more defense talent to its legal team. The administration seems to be serious about the feedings... ...which for now are divided between Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Congress is also taking an interest. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows... Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Robert, welcome back. Um, you know, I thought we could run through some of the ICS environments that uh, you all deal with. And why don't we start with um, natural gas? Give us an idea. Here in the United States, what is the the lay of the land with our natural gas system? How is it
0: controlled? And what are the threats? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to natural gas, it's at a, an interesting changing point for the industry. Um, for years, although it was still critical and important, there wasn't as much national attention on it because it wasn't as critical to the bulk electric system. Um, As we have moved away from coal and moved more towards renewable sources, we still need a quick way to be able to generate power, which is natural gas. And so natural gas is starting to feed the electric grid, much more so, uh, even a lot of uh, larger energy companies buying up natural gas companies, which means that that national focus has definitely increased. There are threats that have targeted natural gas already, and we've heard about these over the years. We've never seen destruction or disruption as a result of an intentional attack, um, but of course, it's still something that weighs very heavily on the folks' minds, especially when we start seeing the criticality of the industry increase. What, what they're sort of up against today is a variety of, of risk that they're trying to mitigate. One of the factors for them is they do have sort of that traditional SCADA approach, meaning uh, very long distances right a lot of pipelines mm-hmm. um very large landscape that they have to cover as well as very boutique kind of systems you know gas compressor station along the side of a pipeline is not really normal um knowledge for a lot of those even in the industrial control security community and um, so for them they're trying to reduce that risk not only the physical threats and the things they have to deal with like crazies along the pipelines but also in the fact that their threats can get out to those locations and it's not some easily tapped infrastructure. It's not like they could drive to every single gas compressor station and every single aspect of the pipeline and storage wells and all that and throw a managed switch on there and start tapping that traffic. Uh, it's not not really achievable in that way. So they're much more around ingress and egress filtering and understanding uh, if they can identify threats from the control center down or back up again from those sites. And at the same time, they're just dealing with the nature of the politics. So we've got some good organizations like the downstream natural gas, ISAC, who's trying to do a lot of advocacy and outreach in that sector. Um, but I, I expect this will be a very turbulent next couple of years for them as they try to figure out how to articulate what the real risk is while minimizing it without letting, as you noted, the hysteria get taken away as congressional members and others start asking questions on, oh, no, what is the threat to this new industry? It's not really yeah. new, but this industry that's new in its criticality to the electric grid. So fantastic opportunity for them, uh, definite challenges. Uh, but uh, as always, we've got some fantastic people taking on that challenge. And what would be the impact
1: of an interruption of uh, natural gas service?
0: It could be significant. It depends on a lot of factors, but one of the factors to consider is other generation sources of of power in that region, as well as time of the year. So as an example of, of a particularly bad scenario, if we're talking about the dark uh, sort of months of the year, we're not getting as much in terms of like solar and we move towards solar more in the grid. And we also combine that with it being winter in places like the Northeast or th- Northwest, you know, a, a significant outage could actually have loss of life impact uh, when it comes to people in that region. Now we're not talking about everybody in the region dying, but but nobody should take any loss of life uh, lightly. So we're, we're talking a, a, a number that... Um, is uncomfortable mostly just because we're talking about people's lives there. Um, so I, I think there's a realistic scenario where an attacker can can make planned and coordinated strikes against uh, pipelines that have real repercussions, but it still is much more difficult and nuanced than than people make it out to be. But the complexity of a natural gas pipeline is not the same as the complexity of the overall grid, which means to take down a giant portion of the grid for any significant portion of time is a very complex problem. It's not as complex in gas pipelines, but it is still not trivial by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Frank Downs. He's Director of Cybersecurity Practices at ISACA, an international professional association for IT auditors and cybersecurity professionals. Our conversation today focuses on his experience as an adjunct professor in cybersecurity And the challenges he sees the community facing when it comes to educating the next generation of cybersecurity pros. There's kind of a two-pronged problem here with uh, getting everybody. Actually,
2: there's more like a three-pronged problem here when we're talking about getting everybody up to snuff for cybersecurity. First and foremost, we have this continually growing gap. Of uh, a great quote that was told to me by one of our members was: Every time someone buys a new iPad or iPhone or computer or laptop. The internet gets a little bit bigger, right? Mm. And we, uh, with the pace of new devices coming online online every day, we're not making cybersecurity professionals or or training cybersecurity individuals fast enough. Um, So the gap keeps growing. If you take a look at our State of Cyber report every year we put out, uh, the gap is still there and it's still concerning. Uh, The second thing is uh, when it comes to training these professionals is that you're using more traditional, primarily more traditional methodologies such as passive learning for the individuals, for the students. That means, think of when you were in college, right? You would sit in these big halls, and you would have people sit, and they would all learn math from one person who would put it up on, on the chalkboard, and then it was your job to take it all in and then regurgitate it when it came exam time. Mm. That doesn't really work for cybersecurity. That doesn't really work for cybersecurity at all. You can't just you know sit down, have a passive po- death-by-PowerPoint experience, Go in, sit down, take a multiple choice exam, and then all of a sudden be good at cyber, right? It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so we have to change more thoroughly the method of learning in across the board, not just um, in academia. And thirdly, there needs to be greater awareness, in my opinion. Uh, there was a study that was put out last year where 9 out of 10 students, 9 out of 10 millennials graduating, uh, said that they didn't even consider cybersecurity as a career path, not like they thought about it and then said no, as in it just never even crossed their mind as an option, which means there's lack of awareness. And they took a look at that one out of 10. And one of the things that they really had in common was that they had somebody who worked in the field directly or had told them about it in school. So Mm -hmm. that lack of awareness, that's even an option is also concerning. So it's a three-pronged approach, three-pronged problem, if you will, that we are working with and trying to uh, remedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting insight, and I I wonder, I mean, what you described there of, uh, you know, that's literally old-school technique of of a professor at the front of a a big lecture hall, which I certainly experienced, uh, you know, way back in the day. Um, Do we need to be shifting something more along the lines of a trade school? Uh, that's a good point, because that's
2: exactly how I learned too back in the day. And I imagine neither you nor I want to talk about how back in the day that was, right? <laughs> that's um, right. I, I think you might be onto something there. And I, but I don't want to overgeneralize, right? Because right now there seems to be this strong push of college is bad, trade school is good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, everything seems to be flipped on its ear. And that's not necessarily the case, right? So t- uh, trade school is good and college is good. But uh, I think we needed to look at something on a more basic base level, right? A more basic level of how do we train these individuals, whether it is in some type of trade school or whether it is in college, right? Because what we've seen is individuals who do best in the field, you have some type of experience. I'll, I'll give you a great example. I've had uh, several students over the last several years who have come to me and have said, I want to get a job in this field, but I don't even know how to do this. And I'm really concerned about it, Right. Now, uh, these are my graduate students in, that I would that I teach at night and I teach them cybersecurity and they were really concerned, right? Because most of these students come in and their big thing is we would like to get a job. Meanwhile, I talk to every, all these different professionals in the field, many of these executives, and they go, we need more people for these jobs. Uh, there's clearly a miscommunication there, right? And I told the student, I said, you really shouldn't be concerned. You've done so much practical hands-on stuff here that when you go to this interview compared to X, Y, or Z individual or applicant, you're going to blow them out of the water that, and you actually know what the NIST policies are. I can't make you comfortable, but I can encourage you that things will go well. And I'll tell you what, she was one of my best students. She came back and said, you were 100% correct. They said the majority of the people who are applying to this have no actual hands-on experience haven't actually worked with malware haven't actually worked with pack analysis and so forth so when they knew that i could do these things and i even showed them uh that combined with the misunderstanding under- of the NIST policies well th- that, they gave me a job um so i i think and, and that was in a college environment right that was in a grad school environment now can this be replicated in a trade-like experience? Yes, and as a matter of fact, it is on a regular basis. There are um, several different things that ISACA is working with partners on having more of a trade school environment and wherein individuals can come, can sit down, and don't have to go, don't necessarily experience this more formal education path and are able to reskill into the field of cybersecurity. So I think it's uh, an issue that is both impactful for trade schools and for traditional academia as well.
1: So the the institutions that are doing it right, those colleges and universities, um, even down to the community college level, the ones who are who, who in your um, estimation are um setting up the proper mix of things here um what what do they have in common what what are they doing that that sets them apart
2: uh there's two things that i've seen in a lot of successful uh, academic institutions and schools and programs one is they're ensuring that the students are getting real experience whether that takes the form of a range right or whether that takes the form of a lab that they do in class they're actually working with real malware. They're working with real denial of service attacks. They're stopping these things. They're responding to incidents and, and people are living then, right? Because there's no substitute for experience. There, there's no substitute for be, say, sitting down and saying, oh yes, I've dealt with Spectre, right? I, I've, I've dealt with Meltdown. We can, we can work with these things. Um, the other thing that they're doing is they have partnerships and or programs that help these individuals get lined up with a job. Um, and, and can point them or at least prepare them to be competitive in the job market. I think that some institutions who aren't doing as well have this consistent mentality of, well, you got your degree, didn't you? Go go ahead and get that job. That's that's not me. When I, you're starting to see some schools actually take a step back, and what's really, really interesting is you're seeing some schools do this with certain like liberal arts majors, for example, right? Um, you, It's no longer, and speaking as a liberal arts major, Um, getting an English degree doesn't necessarily equate to getting a job Mm -hmm. and you're seeing a lot of these more successful schools say, okay, well done. You got the English degree. Good, good job. Um, you may notice that it's a little hard to get a job. We have this program that is a either cybersecurity or it or technical or engineering program that we can put you through and give you these additional skills that can make you more attractive, which I'll be perfectly honest with you speaking from experience, it wasn't always my English degree that got me my job. In fact, it pretty much never was my Mm. English degree that got me the job. Now I could write and that did help at the job and I could communicate. And as you probably know, in the field of it or cyber or any other field, someone who can do the job and communicate it effectively that, I mean, that's really valuable. So in the long term, they're setting these students up, but not all of these programs and these institutions are doing that, which makes it a lot more difficult for these students to then succeed. People need to know that this is an option. So I think we're finally getting a good beachhead established in uh, trade schools and academia and reskilling programs for adults. However, I think there needs to be, I think we won't really have a good long-term solution until, uh, as a field, we've successfully infiltrated, say, that high school and middle school level of learning and understanding. We're going to need to actually come together and build a more consistent and capable workforce through having a consistent training mechanism and methodology. When I start seeing these classes offered in high schools and it's a curriculum they can pick, then I'll, ha- I'll be a little more encouraged. And I think we are going in that direction. It's just going to take some more time. It's really because, we're, like I said, we're fighting this fight on multiple fronts.
1: That's Frank Downs. He's the director of cybersecurity practices at ISACA.
0: Cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight A.I. with A.I., the best A.I. protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful A.I. engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus A.I. to prevent ransomware and A.I. attacks. Experience your world secured